today is going to be a great one, Experience Growth listeners. Uh, we are going to introduce you to just a phenomenal human being um, and an equally phenomenal business person today. Get ready to meet Rob Gandhi. Rob Gandhi is the founding principal and, and managing partner of Cielo in Austin, Texas. Uh, he founded a company about a decade ago with, with a partner, and uh, that company has now acquired and developed over 1.3 million square feet of commercial real estate in the city of well, in the state of Texas now, the firm's assets under ownership or, or development has a combined value of about $600 million today. Historically, this leadership team has operated over 10.7 million square feet of commercial real estate with a project value of over $1.5 billion. So clearly someone that's made a mark on the landscape of real estate in mostly a, a around Texas and different cities. Austin primarily, has created some of the flagship um, buildings in the city of Austin, some of which actually our organization has been part of, uh, has done events in, has had great experiences in. So it was a bit uh, serendipitous that we got connected through a mutual friend and uh, realized that he had developed and, and, and built some of the projects that I just uh, have always admired in the city of Austin. With that said, much of our conversation will, will actually go outside of the business and really talk about how he built his organization with culture. And as much as anything, doesn't just develop property, but has built a, a purpose-driven, mission-based organization. Their company is built on a fact that health and wellness matters. And as you'll see, they curate experiences for the workplace, experiences for the community that build on this health and wellness theme throughout. But what you'll realize, it's really created a purpose and passion project for him and the entire organization at Cielo. So with that, I introduce to you Rob Candy. Maybe we can begin and just introduce our community to you, Rob. What is your role today and what was it prior to the foundation of the current company? Sure, I will. It's probably easier for me to start pre and then go to, to Cielo if, uh, if that works. I had a finance background, I lived in New York, worked for an investment bank, and then moved. I met my wife in New York. And in 07, we, we moved to Texas. She was a Texan and I was as well. And so I think at some point living in the city for four or five years, you want to get back uh, or we did. And I moved back in 07, did work for a bank for a couple years through the downturn and, and got, got to learn how to do bank workout deals and see these problem assets that they had taken back and help device plans to get them off their books and sold. I felt like that was a lot more interesting than what I had been doing previously. And somebody introduced me to Bobby Dillard, who's my co-founder, Cielo, and we, and he was doing primarily retail development at the time and primarily target anchor shopping centers. And there was a, a deal that I found as an opportunity and some guy, common friend we knew introduced us and we, we actually decided in within a month or two months to form a company around this strategy. And we started the company in May of 2010 with the focus of a, a retail development focus, but really focused on kind of bank workout deals. At that time, there's a lot of repossessed property and 
we saw an opportunity. We didn't have, you know, really any money, but we could help these banks move these assets and get them from a non-performing state to a performing. And that's really how we formed, formed the company. So as I think about what the, the purpose or the mission, that was a, a very analytical financial based solution for, for banks and, and you guys partnered and, and that was your target. Is that right? Initially? That's right. And be, because we were young and I'd say probably starting our company out, we saw the opportunity to buy assets from banks that they had repossessed, but then partner with cities to bring these retailers to their city. And our focus at the time was big box uh, shopping center development. And so our first deal as a, as a company was a Sam's anchor project where, you know, the, the Sam's club in the neighboring city was bringing in so much sales tax revenue. We could go to, it was actually the city of McAllen and where I had, where I was from and say, Hey, we'll bring Sam's to your site. We're going to buy this land at, I'd say a basis that was a little higher than market from the bank. But for that, we will use tax rebates of that Sam's would create in the city in order to bridge the gap and but help the bank out and it helped the city out and, and it obviously jump-started our company. And so we did that in, in the Valley and then we worked on like a Walmart deal in, in Dallas. But that's really the, you know, the opportunity we saw at the time was how do we make win-win situations with various parties and be the, the, the creator uh, or the developer of it all. And it, it worked out. That's interesting. So fast forward. And where, as you described, that seems very tactical and very like just economics. And now I look at what you're doing and it is, it is purpose rich. Not that the prior business model didn't have a purpose, but your approach is different than a lot of developers, even in your own city. What, what changed about your approach or what would you say is different about your approach now than what a lot of developers are doing? I think, you know, early on when you're just trying to make money just to live and and you'll take any opportunity and if you think there's a chance of making money off it, you'll you'll go down that path. And quite frankly, that's what we did for the first three years is we we bootstrapped the company and we scratched and clawed our way to uncovering uh, value or, or seeing value in, in assets that others hadn't seen or overlooked. We were young. And so in you know 2010 to 13, I'd say maybe we're more optimistic than we should or more optimistic than others for one reason or another. And it actually you know led to some pretty big successes because we were buying assets in the downturn and luckily we were in texas and specifically austin and which is obviously blown up since then but those early on deals were more i'd say more out of i'd say more out of necessity or probably less connected to our passion which we've figured out over time versus fast forward today it's less about making money and it's more about 
purpose and it takes a while to figure that out or it did for us. I'd say today our purpose and the things we're passionate about drive our investment decisions over things that maybe could make money me and our, the reward is only money and not fulfilling your purpose and, and passion. I, I think we're lucky to obviously be in a great market and that's allowed us to even say things like this. It's, yeah. it's easy to say, hey, follow your, follow your passion and, and figure out how to make money out. around that. I think it's, it's a lot harder to see the opportunity. I think you got to start with that purpose or that those things you're passionate about and follow that and start whatever businesses around that. Don't worry about making money. If, if you're really passionate about something and there's a business plan that you think could make money, I think that's the, the worry about making money on the back end, I think is something that has stifles people in their you know, pursuit of you know, entrepreneurialism maybe. And so that's one thing we've learned over the years. I think a takeaway for our community, Rob, is that, that oftentimes, and it's, such a, it's almost a cliche now where people say, hey, you follow that passion. And, and potentially we have a generation showing up following passion, but not really figuring out how to contribute to a community or contribute to the economy while following that passion. But for you guys, there was a three-year period where you said yes to a lot it seems right like you still you're you still have the skill to see what others didn't see is the words you used or see potentially missed opportunity maybe it wasn't a passion opportunity but you were willing to do heavy hard work early and while you were doing that gave you the time while building an economic an economically sound business to then earn the right or earn the freedom to make passion calls later and sometimes the hard work comes earlier and we're not willing to do it first to the passion work. Yeah, I, I say our purpose early on was making money. Like <laughs> we've got to make money. We don't have any money. How do we do it? That's our sole purpose. And so we said a, a yes to a lot of things. And as we got older and the company became more established, I think having that criteria to say, no to anything under a certain size or something outside of our expertise is what we started to focus on. And then it became no to things that don't fit our passion, you know, our purpose. Mm -hmm. Really, that's been the change I can think of over the last 10 years is, is that. I like that a lot. I think that's a huge takeaway, right? The no for like you first earned to say no based on your model. And then you then learned or earned the right to say no based on your passion. Now you, you mentioned your partnership and I think we could so often these interviews show up because someone showed up as a leader in their field or their industry or highly successful. And uh, we only hear that part of it. And yet there was a decade you've been building the current company for a decade and you each came with a, a unique skill set to the table that you had learned and, and worked on for, right, like almost a decade prior to. How important was, do you think, the partnership and the, the blending of the skill set? What would you put there? Yeah, I, I think we're both very lucky. We're two pretty different people. And I'd say the, the I'd always been in charge of the, the capital market side because of my banking and finance background. I always handled that and kind of equity raise duties 
we both were more, you know, business development, so bringing in deals. And then he had really the expertise with real estate development and, and leasing. And I think having the right partner is all huge part of our success. We've, up until about three years ago, we were pretty loose on roles and we have really defined expectations and roles and between us two. And I think there's, if you, there's two kind of equal partners and those roles aren't aligned, it's really hard to hold somebody accountable for their duties. And I think that's been a big part of it because it's, if, if somebody isn't in charge of one thing and two people are, then really nobody is, right? And we've started to define, we have defined, you know, roles and responsibilities based on the type of people we are. What do we like? What do we, what are we good at? And we do a lot of personality assessments and that has helped us, not only just for us to the other 40 plus people in the company, identify what roles they're in. Are they in the right role? And if they're not, where, where are their strengths and, and basically set people up for success that way. That's been a pretty, pretty uh, big focus for us over the last three to four years. So as you've done that, I know one of the things that your organization is known for is just culture within the company. And we'll, we'll get to the culture of the product that you create in a minute, but how has the, the definition of roles and getting people in their strength zones, how has that led to maybe corporate culture or company culture? And, yeah. and, and what else has been the driving force behind that for you guys? You know, our culture is, is always evolving. I'd say it's, it's, we always like to think we've got a great culture and we're experts in creating great culture. I'd say it's, it's really all about the people you hire and that are in the boat with you. And we're talking about learning experiences and how those affect culture. Early on, when we were hiring people, it was primarily for skills and values came after that. Hmm. We didn't really have a, a great defined value list. And you take what you can get early on. You don't have a lot of credibility. Somebody's got a CPA a certification and a and back at a you know degree in whatever it is, or really good at modeling deals, but their values aren't totally aligned. That was what we and we were forced to, or not forced. That's what happened early on. That affected our culture because we'd have people that had were in the in the tent that didn't have values that totally aligned as we started to really focus on okay we need to make sure we have a great culture put people in the right seats all that we really set out our values and you know defined those and made sure that everybody knew what they were and if they were on board with them this is going to be the place that works for you if you're not like no hard feelings, but you're, you're welcome to leave. Once we did that, people kind of self-selected and that really helped our culture because if five out of, you know, seven people had the values that you wanted, that you guys all, everybody signed up for, but there was two bad apples and you let them hang on that creates motivation problems that creates all sorts of problems in your culture. And I think 
by removing or people self-selecting out of the company that didn't totally have the values we had, people, the people that stayed really appreciated, really appreciated that, which is a huge boost to our culture. Like our culture today is, is one of complete transparency. We, I don't know if you've ever read Ray Dalio's book, Principles, but we, the whole company has read it. We are actually doing one of the race programs right now, which is we're the test baby for, but it's all about, this is our mission. These are our values. This is, don't be afraid to approach me or Bobby or whoever with, with problems or tell us where we've you know done stuff wrong. And by having transparency and being able to speak the truth, I think that's helped eliminate a lot of things that get in the way of having a great culture. So it's ever, always evolving, but that's but today, that's really where we are and how it's been different. What's interesting as you bring up, even going back to uh, when you said you had to get your roles clearly defined, one of my favorite parts of Ray Dalio's perspective in his book is when he did that time in motion study. And, and he said he looked at his company and it grew fast. And you guys have grown fast. He, he grew so fast and, and he realized that they were slipping from his words were being pervasively excellent. And so he did this time in motion study and realized, gosh, if, if I was going to do everything that was assigned to me excellently, it would be 165 hours a week. And 80 was too much because he wasn't living experientially. And so then it's now I have the opportunity to go find the right people to do this even more excellently than I am doing, but with these underlying principles as the guiding attraction quotient or hiring quotient. And it sounds like you guys have done that perhaps even based on the influence of, of principles as well. Yeah, absolutely. I'd say a lot of it is, is principles based and that's why I talked about values assessment and or the personality assessments, yeah. having the, the right person in the right seat or making sure that they have the ability to give feedback, right? Or under, take feedback and give feedback has been a, a huge, it's a huge part of where we're at today with our culture. How do you, how do you guys connect um, the actual product, what you do with your people purpose as well? You definitely choose specific projects and you develop them in such a way that is so, to, from my perspective, purpose rich. How do you connect your people to that? We start with, okay, what, what is our criteria for a project? Today, it is stuff that has an impact on the stakeholders, right? We do, I don't know, a industrial deal in some other town, maybe, but I'd say that's not really our focus. It's how do we impact stakeholders in our community? and stakeholders in the company and stakeholders that are our investors. It all comes back to what our, what we're passionate about. And my passion could be a little bit different than my CFO's passion or somebody else's passion. But I think the, the, the common thread is improving the, the lives of other people whether it's through architecture. We geek out over great architecture, building things that are a little bit different. And architecture design is one, one thing we can say, okay, we're not gonna build 
in 20 years, I want to drive by this building and show my kids this building. And it's going to be something that's, I'm still proud of. We've, we're really into health and wellness and we feel it's like a duty to build buildings that are healthier and promote wellness for our tenants. Um, and we can dig into that in a bit if you like. It, it's, we always want to be win-win, whether it's with the neighborhood or the tenant or whoever at the city. If we're going to go into the neighborhood that and develop a, a building, you know, let's just say East Austin, right? You know, there's a big kind of gentrification concern going on in East Austin. And so we want to build things that are from the fabric of whatever neighborhood or city we're going into. And we feel by giving buildings architectural elements from that neighborhood or bringing in local artists to into our building and we showcase their art, promoting outdoor communal spaces that the public can come and enjoy, even if they're not tenants in the building. Those are all things that we're thinking about and we're super passionate about. And at the end of the day, we're trying to improve the, the lives of people who maybe don't directly lease the building, but you know what, their house is right by the building and they'd rather drive by an architecturally pleasing building versus just whatever, tilt up, not, a, not high design uh, building. What's interesting is you've captured the connection between the investor, right? The stakeholder in the company, the team, the staff, the future tenant, and the community in which that new project building rehab is going to show up in. Now, you mentioned that health and wellness is a big deal for you within your organization, but also in the buildings that you participate in. What does that mean? Like, how do you focus on that? How does that mission or that purpose show up in, in the actual product? The, a lot of people in real estate think that in order to build, you know, architecturally pleasing buildings or healthy buildings that it's a lot more money. And if you take the focus less on making the return, but more on building something that is win or a giving back to the community or improving the lives of your tenants, I think the return and the profits will follow. I think tenants appreciate health and wellness, obviously, and will they pay up to be in, in our buildings? We're not even focused on that. Will, in theory, should they? Yeah, sure. But that's not, uh, that's not really a focus. Let's take that out of the equation. We are, and I, I mentioned earlier, we feel like it's a duty of ours as we build buildings that last 100 years or, or, or more to do them right the first way, the first time. And we built, for example, Third uh, and Shoal was our high last high rise downtown. It was the first lead platinum high rise in the city of Austin. And if you know the history, Austin Green Building was the predecessor to lead. And that's really how lead spun out. The number of lead buildings in Portland or Seattle compared to Austin are, are, are way more. We, we've been behind what a lot of people are doing on the West Coast. And the fact that there wasn't a lead platinum building in, in 
high rise in downtown Austin was something that we felt we should do. Whether it was at the returns or not, we, I remember being in the, in the architectural meetings and saying, we kept bringing this up. Let's, what's it going to take to get to lead? What's it going to take to get to lead or to lead platinum? And we made that a focus. It was, it was because we wanted to build not a sustainable and a, a building that had never been done on that level before. That was, that stemmed from our passion to build healthy buildings on top of that. So that's more kind of materials and, and systems and whatnot, energy efficiency. But then you focus on the air, the light, the water, connection to the outdoors. And my, my business partner, Bobby is a, you know, he, he calls himself a biohacker, which is it's, it, you know, biohacking is basically doing little things to put in your life or technology to, to increase your health. So we started looking at air systems that can increase the amount of oxygen or the, the biophilia we in our new office. I think we've got like the largest or one of the largest real living walls in the city. And it's no, it's no uh, secret that having indoor plants and being connected to nature makes people feel healthy. We felt like that was worth spending money on. It just so happens the, the group out of Johnson City does, I think like majority of Amazon's buildings, they do their living walls. And that was a big, that was, that stemmed from one of our, one of our passions. We've, we built decks on every floor of that third and shoal building, which really hadn't been done before in a high rise in office. You know, there was, you know, from the air to the light, lighting that uh, doesn't give off blue light during the day or that, you know, affects your cortisol and whatnot. There's things as a developer you can do, you know, the, the, the reason people don't do them a lot of the times is because they feel like the cost is not that way the benefit. And we, when you take the, that mindset out of it, then, you know, it really allows you to take chances and do these things that others probably don't think have a lot of value. What's interesting is fast forward, the project's done. Those that are going to live there, work there, play there, experience that building completely differently than perhaps the building that they came from or where they're, or where they're, tenancy was prior to moving into one of those, one of those buildings. So your spaces become uh, experiential is what we like to say, as opposed to just utilitarian. Yeah. It's, it's the same reason that, you know, Facebook and Google and a lot of these big tech guys with big budgets spend so much money on their space. A lot of it's for recruiting for their, their people. At the end of the day, it's, okay, once I've landed that person, how are they going to feel in their office? Like, how are they going to be excited to go in their office? Are they going to have an office that's just boring and not well lit and trashy? No, people want to feel, employers want uh, employees to, to feel excited when they come to the office, exact same thing with us. We want people, when they walk through our lobbies, they want to, we want them to see the amazing artwork that we've curated from a local artists down the street. And we've got a small story about that person, or we've had the artist uh, come to the building and we have a party for them like we did on one of our East side buildings. 
great office. If, if you ever go to our new office, our personal new headquarters, we feel like office has been behind the times. I, I think we're going more towards a hospitality type feel. We think when you're going into a hotel lobby, how great does that feel? It's comfortable. There's there's drapes, there's nice furniture, there's you know things that are more inviting. Back when I lived in New York, I remember walking in these big, huge cavernous lobbies and it was like you and the security guards and you go, you have a checkpoint and you go through the turnstile. It's so intimidating. You don't feel good when you go into one of those lobbies. It's not inviting. It's very corporate and it's very, from a guy that grew up on the of, of South Texas in a small town and, and, and going to New York. And my first day I go to this, you know, huge cavernous lobby with these guys. Like, it's just not a comforting place. Like at Third and Shoal, we took a lobby that probably should have been twice the size and shrunk it down. And instead of having that space, the other half that was toward the for a lobby, we decided to have a coffee ended up being Intelligentsia Coffee, uh, which is the first location in Texas. But we, we had a nano wall that opened up to the lobby. And so we created energy in that lobby. And so people, people would spill out and you know, get your coffee. People would spill out into the lobby. We had a restaurant on the other side. That's what people want to experience. They don't want to experience you and the security guard. They want to experience energy and walking through the lobby and seeing their friends hanging out and creating places that are an alternative to being in their office where they can go and jam out with the people. One of the things as you say that it makes me think of is, is I think human beings have changed in what they expect from work. And when you look back and right, having been born and raised and grew up and worked in my first office was on wall street and, and right. I would go into a lot of attorneys offices and, and it was, as big as the lobby, if you can make the lobby bigger, it was there to impress you. And I think you're right. Like those two words that jumped out at me as I thought about those were, they were built to impress and intimidate. And now, and I think even on the other side of everything that the, the world is going through here in 2020, as we're recording this, connection becomes more and more important. And what you've really created is a space for people to connect I think it's important for people to connect to their space and have identity with the space in which they live and work and play in. But it also, it also allows for that human connection based on the design of your spaces as well. Yeah, I I want to talk about connection to community because I think you guys do this incredibly well and and it's based on who you are. I came across the the story that actually I'm thankful it was published, but the, the story back in early 2019 when you were building, I think the second foundry building, and there was a a home on on that lot and you were putting up 160,000 square foot of mixed, right? Of mixed use. And there was this this small little historic home. Could you tell our community about what what happened there and what you did with that home? Yeah, we, we, it was actually, you know, the, what we saw was either a home that could potentially be demolished or, or we had the ability to fix it up and give it to somebody else. And so it, what we did was that we found a lady that had a piece of land on the east side who her house had burned down 
And I think she had moved into the garage and that had either burned or something happened to the garage. And we were able to say, hey, listen, we've got this house that is is going to be moved. We'd love to give you a new home. And so we, you know, we paid to have the home totally redone and she had the lot and it worked out. I gave her a, a house, brand new house in on this lot that she had for years. And so we're, things like that are what this is all about. Those are the most rewarding things for us. It's not the kind of the, the profit at the end of the day. It's really like the experiences for us that you, that you, that you learn from, that you, some of these experiences are not always positive, but it's how you deal with them. And is there a way to make unfortunate situation and a win for somebody? And at the end of the day, like that's super rewarding, right? It's, if it was all easy, this would, this wouldn't be a lot of fun. It would probably be great to, to make money, but that's really not, that's, that's what our focus early on. It's definitely not anywhere close to what is our, 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 our you know, drives us today. It's about these experiences we have. What I think is awesome is you were able to create a completely different experience for a community member that had lived there on that lot for, it was 50 years of her life. And you're right, there was two fires and ultimately right after the second fire potentially would have been displaced from a neighborhood. I think oftentimes people look at developers and say, gosh, that's what's happening. People are coming in, a small little house turns into 160,000 square feet. And yet if you have a, a socially responsible mission and experiential mission, you're able to actually allow the current community to live and stay within the community that they've grown up in and, and actually improve the, the health and wellness of, of the way people live as well. There's a, there's a project in Austin. In fact, this project has gotten um, national news. Someone actually in Portland brought it to my attention a few years ago, and we've um, done some work in raising money for it, and it's called Community First, but a landmark project for the country, I believe, and, and it's, it started there in Austin. Your organization and company has pledged a million dollars to this, to Community First, Maybe you can tell our community what Community First is, why it matters to you, and, and why you're such a huge supporter of it. And, and then I'm going to make an ask of our community afterwards to get behind and, and help support it as well. But what's Community First and why are you guys involved? Yeah, we, and I'll just, you know, just clarify, we pledge, I think back in just 2018, a million dollars to help fight the, the really end homelessness in Austin. And some of that money went to other nonprofits. Saw that Community First was really a, a pretty ingenious model and a very successful model in um, dealing with people that wouldn't necessarily qualify for all support for supportive housing because maybe they were still I don't know, maybe they were still on drugs or there was some sort of record that they had that denied them the opportunity to get into some supportive housing. Alan Graham and, and the people at Community First saw the opportunity to create a place for really the most vulnerable homeless people and felt that giving them shelter was the first step 
in in helping them come back and have dignity and a lot of people are homeless for they made one bad decision and they're out on the street and then five years later they're still out on the street what community first has done is said listen we will give you a house we will you know that you can call your own some uh, have trailers some have you know small houses that's first and what they do second is say now here is your community that is here to support you and you can you know still be on drugs but we are here to support you getting off drugs and we're there we've all you can go to community first and move in and you can talk to people who have weaned themselves off of whatever you know, vice was holding them back and they've done an amazing job they're they just opened phase two and it's really going around talking to people and their stories. It really is one bad mistake or just some unfortunate happening that, that put them out on the streets. And so <clears throat> when we made this pledge, we looked at what are the things that can really move the needle in a big way for us to help solve this thing. We knew the icon guys who basically have a 3D printing technology where they're printing homes. And we said, listen, we'd love to buy a printer and really partner with you guys to build housing to help end homelessness in Austin. I think our first project out there was the community center in phase two. Since then, I believe we've done five or six houses. This is pre-COVID and a lot more on the way. You know, obviously 3D printing is, is super exciting and we felt back to the win-win. You could create homes, you know, for homeless people. You could obviously be a part of some really exciting technology, but it was first and foremost is it was our, it was a passion project for us that we drive by people every day that are homeless and being able to give somebody a house is just, I can't think of anything better. That's like the, the most rewarding thing we could do. And that's how it started and it's been very successful. Yeah, it was interesting. Pre-COVID, our next uh, experience with our, our group when we got to Austin was going to go and, and do a tour of Community First and, and that the trip got canceled and, and got put on hold, but we're going to make it down there. I think one of the interesting things about that organization and interestingly enough, yours as well, is they meet people where they are. They, they meet people where they are at that moment in time and what they need, and then bring them towards this preferred future that they have. And our organization believes that's the definition of leadership, leading people down a path to their preferred future. You're doing that in your development, right? This is, you're building workspaces and, and space for a better future, right? Health-wise, wellness-wise, community-wise, life integration wise community first does that well and that's why it's a passion project for you because it's like this incredible integration between between life and work where you feel fulfilled in both portions like you said 3d printing is the technology is fascinating and exciting and so to be able to be involved with it while doing good with it is pretty darn awesome which yeah. leads me maybe to my last question uh, a recent interview uh, that you you did, you'd said that, gosh, you just want to show up and be the best, right? Like you, you have this in, internal drive to be the best. 
And if you can, if you could go to bed knowing that, man, I delivered right for my investors and for my partners and for, for my work life. But at the same time, I could, you could put your head on the pillow and know that you were the best husband and the best dad, then you're going to, you're going to go to bed knowing that you didn't leave anything on the table. How do you do that? I don't. <laughs> no. The preferred future. But yeah, that's right. How does someone build something big while also making sure that they live experiential? You guys travel a lot. Maybe that's it. Like, what is, what's some advice as someone that's doing it, living into that, aspiring to do it? What's the advice for, for people that want to live that way? I think I'm pretty competitive. And so, just to address the first part, I think that's probably where that came from is always wanting to be the the leader in whatever we do. That's just a natural thing for me. I think you hit on the head though. It's for me, you know, the thing that's changed and now that I've got kids and, and a family, having those experiences far outweigh any sort of material thing I could ever have. And our focus as, as a family is whether it's going places that you've never been before or doing things you've never done before. It's really, how do I have lasting memories with my kids? And quite frankly, a lot of those are riding bikes to projects and we'll go hit three or four projects and go and see the the excavators going on or the concrete being poured. And that to me is not only doing site tours and, and checking on the progress of, of the deals we're building or going to see the, the Yeti deal we did on South Congress that we talked about earlier. I, I remember taking the kids there when it was under construction and it was, we, they were a part of it. And so they'll probably go by that building someday in 10 years from now. And hopefully they'll remember when, when we walked that or when we were in there looking at the build out for, for Yeti or, or one of these other tenants. And so a lot of it is these experiences that are also part of work. Work is obviously a, a it's got to be fun and you've got to be passionate about it. And, and what I've seen is my kids can have just as much fun walking around a, a got to be careful with OSHA listening, walking around a, a around a construction site where we'd ride our bikes to it. And then afterwards we'll get ice cream or whatnot. But like that to me is what it's all about. And and that's been the most fun thing I can think about from the kids side on the, on the, on the business side and with our people, honestly, it's kind of the same thing. We love to bring them to the sites. We like to have them experience a, a building going up or, a topping out. If you're an accountant or an AP person and you're cutting checks or doing that all day, they don't get to see that side of, of what's going on, which to me is the fun side. And so having them feel like, and, and know that without them, we couldn't do these buildings, tying these experiences to their daily life has been um, a pretty big focus for us. And at the end of the day, it's about what are we learning from our experiences and what are we learning every day? And if the learning can be fun, I think that's really the goal. And hopefully we make money along the way, but that's definitely the byproduct of having fun and learning a lot. What I've, what I've learned is you always will, right? 
if you're having fun and, and you're working hard for other people and you're contributing to the community, interestingly enough, you'll never have to worry about things financially because that will show up as a byproduct of the good work you do. I just want to thank you for being willing to take quite a good amount of time out of your busy day, busy family, busy everything, right? And, and share with the community. 